Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome. It's Corner Kick for the first time after the conclusion of the Big Five Leagues in Europe. As always, I am Nathan Strauss, joined by a man whose viewing experience on Premier League Sunday went from potentially jubilant to despondent in a matter of 10 minutes. It is Nick Vinden. Yeah, I mean, devastated is not strong enough word for the feelings that I was feeling towards the end of that match when, you know, I was yearning for the ball to end up in the back of the Wolves net. However, over at the Etihad, Ilkay Gundogan had finished off a silky pass from Kevin De Bruyne to make it 3-2 to Manchester City. And yeah, I mean, in that moment, you know, I woke up and I was talking to my girlfriend who has kind of become like a Liverpool fan adjacent. And she was saying, like, you know, anything can happen on a day like today. And I was trying not to let myself believe and get caught up in, in, in the moment. But I ended up believing and let, letting myself get caught up in the moment. So, yeah, I'm, I'm joining you guys, you know, a bit, a bit despondent and depressed today. But, you know, that's why, we, that's why we play the game, as they say. But also still much, much to fight for, as exactly. we'll get into Yes, and we are also joined by a man whose viewing experience was purely voyeuristic on uh, Super Sunday, uh, Caleb Rhodes. And speaking of Caleb Rhodes, uh, this morning, <laughs> so, so this morning, this morning, I woke up to like six notifications with Barcelona, um, sort of like the Barcelona logo from Footmobe, and I was oh, like, yeah. I was like, what, was like, what the hell is this? Uh, their season has, you know long since concluded or after sunday it is long since concluded it turns oh, out they have their little thing with the a-league today yeah they yes. played an a-league all-star team so i woke up this morning and it was like oh my god goals from automa Traore and Usmane Dembele. and i was like what the hell is happening so i had like a little heart attack that like they were in some like fourth tier european final that i just like didn't know about um but yeah so caleb that gave me a heart attack but welcome on yes i too was very confused this morning it was like right when i woke up too like the game was still going on between like the hours of like 6 a.m and like 8 a.m um it was also confusing when uh i got a notification that Automa Traore had scored but it wasn't an own goal and it was for the a-league all-star team it turns out there's also an Automa Traore who plays in the a-league of course then Barcelona's Automa Traore scored as well and so all all balance was restored Traore wise. I feel like there's more Automa Traores as well that we've identified. Am I am I right in saying that? No, that's like, like one of our older, that's like one of our older bits because remember there was a time when they could there could have been an entire front line of Automa Traores. Let's move to England, or let's start off in England, where for the first time in a really long time, there was a whole lot to be decided on the final day of the season. Obviously, most of the mid-table spots had been locked up and, you know, fourth place, the European spots got locked up pretty soon, um, you know, 15 minutes in when Spurs opened the scoring against Norwich. Um, and so, you know, seedings two through five really had been determined, you know, within 15 minutes. But out of the blue, Aston Villa, uh, Steven Gerrard's Aston Villa had a 2-0 lead on Man City going into minute 70. Um, whoa, which whoa, meant whoa. That... Okay, before we get into this, I feel like you're you're burying the lead a little bit. Do you want to give us a sense of like how the top seven or so finished up and how the bottom three wound out so we're not burying the lead too far? Man City win the Premier League, um, <laughs> followed you. by Liverpool, Chelsea, and Spurs round out the Champions League places. Arsenal and United will be in the Europa League and West Ham will be in the Europa Conference League. Although there was a time uh, on Sunday when West Ham had actually leapfrogged United, which would have been hilarious to see United in the Europa Conference League. Excuse and me, then... I need you to provide us the proper pronunciation for West Ham. Oh, sorry. Man United finished sixth and West Ham finished seventh. 
So perhaps a trip to the Olympia Stadion <laughs> will be in store for them next year. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, at the bottom, Everton had secured safety by uh, winning their penultimate game of the season. So it was between Leeds and Burnley and some apt finishing. You know, Leeds had not won a match in six match days, propelled them to victory as Rafinha scored a penalty and Jack Harrison scored the game winner uh, from just inside the box on a really nice volley. Um, and that means that Jesse Marsh's leads stay up. And as a wise Jewish man from Newton once predicted, Burnley did indeed finish in 18th, meaning their time in the Prem is over. They'll be managed by Vincent Company next year in the championship. We'll get a, we'll have a full recap next week of sort of how the league shook out relative to our expectations. But this was a really great, day of soccer i mean obviously it didn't finish out the way any of us wanted to at the top but certainly at the bottom uh we got to see burnley go down uh and we got entertainment you know all the way basically through minute 90 between uh you know wolves liverpool uh city and villa yeah so i don't know maybe maybe as you started to get into it we can start with the city game who I want to say kind of like manufactured a moment out of this. I don't really know how to fully interpret. Also, like full disclosure, I was, you know, with intermittent signal in, in the National Park of Acadia during these match days. And so it's just getting sporadic, you know, your texts and goal notifications. And then I had to watch the highlights afterwards. But I feel like uh, several times in the last you know, few game weeks like West Ham a week or two ago, City have kind of uncharacteristically let up two goals just to kind of hit back somewhat spectacularly. However, I feel like this did not feel quite as triumphant as, you know, an Aguero kind of moment to me, although I will give credit to, to Gundogan and, you know, the good finishing from Rodri. But I feel like it seems like there was a lot of tension and drama, but in the end, my sense is there really wasn't all that much at all. I don't know. You guys were probably watching it live and we had a different sense of how news was rippling through the fans, but did it ever really feel like city fully had this out of control or did it just feel like we were still gearing up for, you know, the, the, the title win? Yes. To me, I think there was definitely 10 minutes there where I thought Liverpool had one hand on the Premier League trophy and it was after Coutinho had scored. Because that is like the thing that we had all been talking about, right? Like Coutinho gets signed by Aston Villa, managed by Steven Gerrard. They go to City on the final day with Liverpool having, you know, clawed back from a 14-point deficit to get back within like touching distance of the title. And then Coutinho scores, you know, a worldie to, to seal the, the title and send it to Anfield. And I think like once... You know, I was I was very much like I had my eyes focused on the the Wolves match, and I had the City game on my phone. I had the Wolves game on my lap, the the Liverpool game on my laptop, and I didn't see the goal go in. I didn't see Coutinho score. So when Nathan sent the text that said, "Oh my God, like City have conceded again," it's Coutinho. Um, I was like, "Oh my, it's like happening. It's happening just as we, you know, just as we had all dreamt that it might happen." But you know, unfortunately, City as they so often do, are so good at piling on the pressure against, you know, sort of the, the bottom-rung teams in the Premier League. They're so, their record against, you know, teams outside of the top four, shall we say, is just so exquisite. And they rack up goals against them, and, and teams don't really know how to, you know, handle the momentum shift, especially when, you know, City gets so ball-dominant as they were in this game in the second half. And Villa weren't able to cope. And even, you know... There certainly would have been high drama if Liverpool had found that second goal before the Gundogan goal, had the third Gundogan goal had gone in. But, you know, there wasn't. And... Did, you, uh, did you see the video of someone in the, in the crowd at Anfield saying that Villa had scored a third? Yeah, that's so cruel. That's so cruel. <laughs> I thought that's it was so cruel. Terrible. I thought it was cruel. It was also a little funny because it is a very interesting, I mean, abstracting it from the soccer, it is very interesting to think about an entire stadium full of people who have one eye on the match and then you know they're frenetically i'm sure like we were refreshing footmob and, and twitter just trying to wait for that news from 
another ground. Um, but you know, it's been at the end of the day, like I, I thought that city sometimes like to go a goal down just for like the challenge. And I think that's one of the reasons why they tend to not have as much success in Europe, because, you know, you can do that if you're able to come back from, you know, 75% of your one goal deficits over the course of the year, you, you know, you win the league losing three times like they did here. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, pretty muted celebrations in Manchester, um, as many people have noted, I, I think sums up a lot about how I feel about City winning the league. Um, again, it's, it's hard to find them compelling, I think, just because of how well-funded they are how dominant they are and then some of the personalities that they have from the sideline to the pitch so I guess congratulations are in order um but you know I, I get a sense that next year will be different we'll have a different champion uh, in right and I think I think this season was very Liverpool and the quadruple in particular was very much you know the narrative particularly throughout the second half of the season and I think without Liverpool and, you know, they didn't end up crossing the finish line as champions at the end of the day, obviously. But without Liverpool, this Premier League season would have been very similar to last season when, you know, around February, it becomes a bit of a dull watch. And I think this Liverpool team is one of the greatest teams the Premier League has ever seen. And there's a very good possibility that they're going to end up with only one Premier League trophy to write home about. And such as, you know, the dominance and spending power of Manchester City. And they are a great team. But I think you're right, Nathan, there, there is uh, artificialness, both in terms of like their fan base and the celebratory, the lack of celebratory nature towards their titles. And I think just like them going up against the history of a club like Liverpool and the quadruple being, you know, this dangling carrot throughout the season. And Liverpool, you know, got so close, finishing with a record of 28, 28 wins, eight draws and two losses, one less loss than Man City on 92 points, which is enough points to win the Premier League and you know, several, like, I think over 15 of the past, you know, Premier League it's, seasons. it's like 25 of the, whatever, the 30 Premier League seasons, it would have been enough points to win. Yeah. And I think that just shows you like the levels that these two teams are operating on. And, you know, in the, in, in the Jurgen Klopp Guardiola rivalry of the past few years, Liverpool, like collectively are only one point behind Man City. And I think it just shows you that City just have that, particularly in the league, just have that, one smidge extra gear to 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 get over the line. Let's yeah, the talk. one smidge oh. extra and sorry, just one last point. I think that one smidge extra could best be called decadence. Like the fact that Jack Grealish didn't make it off the bench in the final game of the season, the game that you know Sydney it turned out needed to win in order to win against the league, his former club against his former club says a lot and then his celebrations too and i think we can table this maybe for a conversation next week or the week after when we kind of dig into like what this season means more broadly um but i know nick you just said that you think you know the premier league might be going to another team next year and it does seem like teams are tooling up for a massive summer of spending but unfortunately i probably don't fully share those sentiments but again something to be excavated um, in future shows. Nathan, where do you want to take us? Well, I was going to take us to the bottom. I mean, speaking of excavation, uh, I think we already discussed Spurs likely finishing ahead of Arsenal. Um, and, you know, I, I, I didn't have any particular hopes going into this game. Um, but, you know, the top seven, I think, were by and large rounded out nicely. I think Leicester had just sort of played themselves out of Europe, um, you know, earlier this year. And West Ham, who were... I think about halfway through the season, one of the surprise contestants for Champions League football ended up seeing some heavy regression. Uh, also just wanted to shout out the super weird line that Arsenal had this year of 22 wins, which was the third most in the league, uh, three draws and 13 losses, which is crazy. They had the fewest draws in the league um, by two. So it's very interesting numbers there, but let's excavate a bit, as you said, Caleb, and, and three teams that will not be returning to the Premier League next year, Norwich, Watford, and Burnley. Leeds, I'm very glad they stayed up. Uh, and Burnley, I'm very glad they went down. Uh, and, you know, the way that this came about was completely unsurprising when, you know, a Newcastle team that 
have issues of their own that we've talked about at length went two nil up uh, Burnley. There was no way they were going to be able to come back from that. Despite Maxwell Cornet, who only recently realized that he's not in fact on loan at Burnley uh, and that it's a so permanent brutal. deal. Um, one of the, one of the, one of the like funnier quotes uh, he scored, but Burnley could not find the equalizer and Leeds, um, you know, got that late winner to secure it. Uh, Leeds stay up. They've got work to do. They've already brought in Brendan Aronson for the coming year uh, as the sort of American contingent grows larger. But yeah, Burnley, their stint in the Premier League was about two years too long. And, um, you know, they're a team that I think could have real difficulty coming back up uh, in this era of championship soccer. Yeah, I don't I don't have a ton to add. I mean, I've been rooting against Burnley basically all year. I think heading into this weekend, this past weekend, I thought that Leeds are probably the more likely team to go down, but I'm I'm very pleased with how things turned out. And you look at this Burnley team and you know, besides a few players that I imagine will get, you know, picked up by other teams in the league. I'm looking at, you know, goalkeeper Nick Pope, Tarkowski, who in my mind has like Newcastle signing, like basically like Dan Byrne, but better all written all over him. You know, Dwight McNeil, uh, Cornet. The rest I think of the J. team. Rod, J. Rod probably has another, you know, stint at a Oh, no, you know, he, he totally will score like 19 yeah. goals in the championship. For oh, the yeah. Year. You know what? You might be right. And I think he's, isn't he like from Burnley? He's like a Burnley that's his hometown club either way i, think I have does. i have no idea um i mean i'm interested to see where where Weghorst ends up actually true um i mean you have to imagine that you know, he could be sick in the championship though like he's, he's, a, he's basically the same player as Mitrovic, right so but yeah. you but you have to imagine that a player like about Weghorst has a pretty substantially low relegation release clause that burnley had to factor in in order to convince him to come to the club and i think that was the case for you know, Rafinha at Leeds and a lot of members of their squad as well. And I think that was going to be like the story about Everton, right? If Everton went down, you know, they hadn't programmed these relegation release clauses into their players' contracts, but teams like Burnley and Leeds and, you know, Watford have programmed clauses like that in like some of the more higher valued players. So I think a player like Veghorst, we could see leave for a very, very cut rate um, this summer. I could certainly see that, you know, perhaps to go back to the Bundesliga. And speaking of players that might go back to or go to other leagues, uh, you know, Rafinha, there were great images of Leeds Rafinha uh, you know, celebrating, like iconic yeah, celebrating, image, right? celebrating in the crowd. Um, uh, it was awesome. Rafinha, I think, was probably the best player on the balance of things for Leeds this year, or certainly the most prolific, especially given the abs, the, the long absences of Bamford, uh, etc. But I think Rafinha probably leaves this summer as well. I know um, Bayern and Barcelona have both been interested, although I'm not totally sure where he fits in in either of those projects. But, um, you know, can he... I say something real quick? Oh, of course. I think so. I think we kind of get caught up in the, you know, players leaving for, you know, the next cycle of their career. I think it's, it's pretty evident that Rafinha is a bit too good for the level that Leeds are at right now. His agent is Deco, former Barcelona player. And so I think there's every chance that he, that he moves to the camp new this summer. But like Leeds fans you know, can obviously be upset that he's leaving. You know, this is a high-quality player who's so entertaining to watch, and you want, him, you want to see him stay at your club. But you are always going to have you know, that moment, you know, that moment of Rafinha you know, kit off, waving it around with the fans, the traveling supporters, um, flares going off, you know, him celebrating. And I think, you know, him leaving does not, you know, mitigate any of the passion that he has had for the past two years playing for Leeds. And I was like, kind of like, in, in a weird way, I was moved by that photo and by the scenes of a historic club like Leeds staying up. And so I think, yes, Rafinha is going to leave. But you know, if I'm a Leeds fan, I'm thinking, I'm sad about him going, obviously, and leaving the project. But I'm also going to remember, you know, that tableau image of him celebrating for like the rest of my time. And you can now get a little bit more money from Barcelona, as well as Mingueza. That's that's so. Is he doing a cash plus player deal for Rafinha's what's been mooted 
And if we could give Mingeza to Leeds, I think that would be oh my you know, god. The there isn't yes. Leeds. There isn't there now. isn't a system. Don't take it. <laughs> so so the so, so the Leeds system, which really emphasizes one-on-one defending. Uh, oh my god. I mean, like I get it. Like it's all accounting, and Mingeza could be a totally fine like fourth choice center back for Leeds. Um, but hey, here's the thing, though: Would Mingeza really make Leeds' defense worse? Serious question. I mean, he's not better. He's not better than like Dallas, right? As an outside back, I just think if he plays as a center back, as he's a center totally back, fine. He's, he's yeah, as a center yeah. back, he's fine. Is also, he really he's worse like, than Cop, whatever that guy's name is? He's 23, right? He's 23. Yeah, Luke yeah, Galing like... is what, like 31? Like Luke Galing, yeah. I get it. Leeds United legend at this point. Not, I don't think he's terribly good. <laughs> So maybe maybe there's some truth to what you're saying, Caleb. No, I mean he's probably not as good as Diego Lorente, and he's probably a little bit better than Liam Cooper, but Cooper is just a, a more foundational piece. So Leeds quickly turning into sort of like Barcelona rejects as well with uh Junior Firpo there. Um but regardless, Leeds stay up, Burnley go down. I wish them the worst. Watford and Norwich, I'm sure, will be back in the conversation next season just because with the kind of pockets that Watford have and Norwich's history as a yo-yo club, they're always there or thereabouts. But let's move on to another nation where the wait, title wait, was decided wait. on I the think last we have to, day. We have to do, can, can we spend like two seconds on Man U? Oh yeah, we can do two seconds on Man U. Who, so two seconds on Man U who lost. I think most teams kind of did what they needed to do this weekend. Um, Man U we didn't really have anything to play for, but still lost 1-0 to Crystal Palace, courtesy of, you know, former Man U player uh, Wilf Zaha. Man Alex U finished... Ferguson is rolling over right now. Yeah. <laughs> Man U finished with 58 points in sixth place. They were closer or they were closer to 10th or as, yeah, closer to 10th than they were to 5th. They're as close to Newcastle in 11th as they were to Arsenal in fifth. They finished with a goal difference of zero, which was like the eighth best in the top 10. An abysmal season. Of course, Ronaldo was third top scorer in the league. But they didn't win a game in which Cristiano Ronaldo did not start this season. Yeah. Th- this, They're totally this is- reliant on him at periods. Yes, I, I'm curious to see what the Ten Hog turnaround, if there's such a turnaround or if it's just a turn down, happens. But I just wanted to highlight that Man U were abysmal all season long. And this is, I think, amongst many bad seasons post Ferguson, their worst by, by far. It is yeah. by far the worst. I think it is by far the worst, just given the amount of money that they spent in the summer on you know targets that they had sought after for a long time in Jaden Sancho and on targets that they thought were necessary to improve, like Rafael Varane. And I think they got swindled by Real Madrid. I don't think Madrid would have let Varane go if they didn't know that something was going on there. He's had like a serious downturn in quality since joining the club. And yeah, Eric Ten Hag was present at Sellers Park. You know, he dressed up in like a Korean suit, looking like Hercule Poirot on the hunt for defense, you know, trying to look and investigate and see if there's one there. Spoiler alert, there's not. Uh, and there's going to be a lot more money that needs to be spent in order to improve this team and there was an article in the athletic this week detailing you know the ins and outs of the Raniak tenure of man united and even in those like few months since he joined in december you know it's been a total nightmare there's so many hands in that man united pot it's so disorganized and they're going to need a massive massive clear out this summer both in terms of the administration and on the player level and, you know, there's a bunch of players leaving, like Juan Mata, like Matic. I assume, you know, maybe some of, like, the Scott McTominay's, Phil Jones's will clear out as well. But there's there's a lot of dysfunction over there. And it's going to take a lot more than just one man and Eric Ten Hag to fix it. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, they didn't start their full-strength team on the final day. They nearly paid the price for it as well. Uh, but, yeah, lots of work to be done there. And also... Um, you know, we'll talk about this next week. All three of us had United finishing in the top three based on the transfers this year. And not to make everything about Arsenal or Spurs, but I think it's a credit to both of those teams, given the the way they spent relative to United, um, that they finished where they did and that United finished in sixth. So certainly lots of work to be done for Ten Hag, um, but it seems like he'll have 
you know, again, 200 million to work with. Let's now jump to Italy, which was the only other league that had a title decided on the final day. We talked about the two Milan teams duking it out and both ended up winning 3-0, but it's the Rossoneri that ended their 11-year title drought, picking up a 3-0 win. There were epic photos of Zlatan smoking a cigar, entering the pitch to get his winner's medal. Uh, It was great. And some of the most passionate fans in all of soccer got to see the trophy come back. And shout out my man, Olivier Giroud, who at the tender, tender age of 35 years old. Hell yeah, dude. This man was, you know, super influential for this Milan team. And uh, they ended up coming out on top. And shout out Rafael Leao, by the way, who had a big comeback season after some injuries to be the Serie A player of the season. So all in all, Serie A is black and red. Yeah, I mean, Milan clearly lived up to the moment. I think, I feel like for the past like two months, we've basically been like, can they live up to the moment? Will they live up to the moment? And week after week, it was like one nil win, one nil win, one nil win. And this weekend, I think it all came together with a fairly impressive three nil victory over a strong Sassuolo team featuring some great attacking players. And this is such a well-deserved title um, that I think, you know, caps off what could have been or probably will be Zlatan's last game. I mean, they announced today or yesterday that he will be out for seven to eight months um, after having knee surgery. And, you know, he's what, at the age of 40 or 41, you, you know, wouldn't blame him for picking now as the time to hang up his boots. He had a really you know, impassioned speech to the team um, in the dressing room after the game. And I think, you know, Milan are a huge team historically, but, you know, it's been 11 years since they've won the league. It's been a league that's been dominated by Juve. And it's, this feels good. I think it would have felt fine if Inter had won again too, because I think there's a lot to like about that club, but this team just feels felt good. It had good veteran leaders. It had strong, you know, upcoming young talent. Um, and I think we can all be pleased uh, with, with a Rosaneri Scudetto. Yeah. And in a coach like Stefano Pioli, who I think in many seasons past, you know, has had various moments throughout his few years at AC Milan, where previous leadership, cough, cough, Berlusconi, cough, cough, would have sacked him. They persisted with this manager, the new ownership, you know, someone who is really applied his trade at various stages in, you know, the Serie A pyramid. And this is someone who has managed relegation, threatened teams and teams in Serie B, like Salernitana. Uh, He's actually managed Sassuolo. Uh, Ironically, you know, the team where AC Milan clinched the title on the final day. And this is a coach that I think has developed a crazy strong bond with these players, particularly like the younger players in the squad, like Kolulu, like Tomori like Sandro Tonali, who I think had a tough first season at Milan, but has really come to come into his own with this team this season. And Milan is, have also really stuck to their guns. You know, Olivier Giroud is a player that they wanted from Chelsea in years past, and they finally got their hands on him. He becomes you know, instrumental uh, for this team when Zlatan, Ibrahimovic, when Zlatan Ibrahimovic goes down with an injury in the middle of the season. And they also had to overcome, you know, players leaving for AFCON, they had to overcome, you know, an injury to Mike Mignon, you know, a season after, you know, letting Donnarumma go on a free transfer, which was, you know, everyone thought was going to be a super impactful hit for this team and ended up not being that. And, you know, they come back and win Syria. So I think this is, you know, not only a story of this ancient club in AC Milan, you know, when we talk, when Jose Mourinho talks about football heritage, you know, AC Milan is very much on that list. I think this is also a story of a team, you know, sticking to their guns and being resilient in an age of modern football where that can kind of punish you sometimes, but they have done that and they are triumphant for doing so. Yeah. I mean, all the while Inter, their crosstown rivals won 16 of their last 17 games, including, you know, they routed them in the Coppa Italia semifinals as well. So they had to do this all the while knowing that basically one match would have totally shifted the balance of the race. And, you know, shout out Inter as well, who obviously we talked about them beating Juve in extra time to win the Coppa Italia. 
They finished in second after everyone predicted that they would regress slightly without Romelu Lukaku. But again, they won 16 of their last 17, or rather they did not lose. Uh, they lost once in their last 17 matches. Uh, their team seems to be able to succeed no matter who they put in their starting 11. Uh, they're likely going to be bringing back Ivan Perisic, who could leave on a free, I know, or who could leave rather. I know Spurs were interested, but by and large, they seem to be a very sustainable team. And they have, you know, Andre Onana coming in next year on a free as well. Um, Juve got the also, last think, Champions League spot there. And uh, what was that, Nick? I think an important thing to talk about when it comes to Milan is the fact that they've kind of embraced their heritage a little bit. You know, Paolo Maldini, one of their club legends, is now their technical director. And so I think in a case of like, we look at Man United, you know, appointing someone like Darren Fletcher as their sporting director and that not really working out all that well. And I think there's various cases of, you know, ex-player appointments going wrong, going wrong at different clubs. AC Milan really putting some faith in their history and in, in, a, in a figure like Maldini has really, really provided them with good results. And I think hopefully, and I think with Zanetti at Inter Milan, it's a similar situation. So I think both of these clubs are kind of relying on two tentpole figures of their past and it's, it's yielding good results for you know, the, the city of Milan in general, it seems. And I'm excited to see, you know, what the title challenge shapes up to be, you know, next year. I think the Milan team will look fairly different um, without Ibra for, for much of the season, at least until, you know, the, the World Cup break um, without, you know, Cassier, who is, is leaving to, to Barcelona. Um, we'll see who Inter can bring in this summer, whether they can hold on to Lautaro, who was amazing this year and broke, you know, that 20-goal league barrier for the first time. And then a Juve team um, that will also be somewhat retooled with a full season of Vlahovic coming up. So I think, again, I think Serie A, for probably the third season running, may hold the most intrigue of, of any of the top five leagues. Yeah, as, as we thought it might this year as well. Let's jump now to the two European finals that have already been decided, uh, both of them occurring at midweek. Last week, we saw Frankfurt beat Rangers on penalties after a 1-1 draw through 120 minutes. That game was in uh, Sevilla, and Joe Aribo opened the score. Joe Aribo, playing as a false nine despite being a natural center mid, opened the scoring. Uh Former Atleti youth player, Rafael Santos Boré, former football manager, Wonder Kid, um, who sort of like Gabi Goal had to go back to South America and then return to Europe, scored the equalizer. Every single penalty was converted with the one exception of the most reputable player from either squad, Aaron Ramsey, uh, or certainly one of the biggest names from either squad, Aaron Ramsey, who missed his penalty, giving the European, or rather the Europa League title to Frankfurt pretty entertaining game great fan base uh as well uh and the pictures afterwards of frankfurt uh sharing the europa league trophy with their ultras was really really cool to see this was a very unique final because it's two teams who really haven't been in the european spotlight for a long time in the case of frankfurt uh, this is their first you know major european moment of any of any sort of in their entire club history and this is, I think, something that we don't frequently see in soccer, especially, you know, as the money, the capitalism side of the game starts to take root more and more. I think this was very much, you know, one for the fans, you know, one for two sets of, you know, passionate, diehard fans who haven't seen their team succeed in a very long time. Frankfurt are kind of mired in the middle of the Bundesliga. You know, they're not going to be playing. Oh, I guess they are in this case. They're going to be, you know, going into the Champions League after finishing, I think, it's 11th or 12th in the Bundesliga table. So it's sort of a miracle run for them in this competition, beating the likes of West Ham and FC Barcelona handily to get to this spot. And for Rangers, I think them winning this trophy would have been, you know, the cherry on top of their past few years, both of dominance in terms of, you know, finally stopping the, the 10 in a row for Celtic, you know, winning that trophy under Steven Jarrod last season and going unbeaten to having some turbulence this season with Jard leaving to go to Villa, appointing Van Bronckhorst, not knowing you know, what the next direction is going to look like. But at the end of the day, you know, they didn't, they didn't win 
the Scottish League, but they did make it to a major European final and were very much in touching distance of, of winning it. So, you know, heartbreaking, I think, for Rangers, but I think this is a big moment for Scottish football to show that they, they're able to compete still on this stage. But obviously, I think this is massive for a club like Frankfurt, who are going to be playing Champions League football next season and have secured their first trophy, and I think over a century, if I'm not mistaken. And I think this is just, you know, yeah, it's big for Scottish football. It's also big for German football that, you know, outside of Bayern haven't been all that competitive in Europe in recent years. I'll shout out uh, that this is also big for, you know, American World Cup team members of your Timothy Chandler still riding the bench in this game for Frankfurt many years into his career getting this. And I think this just embodies what you kind of hope a Europa League final will be. I think it's notable that neither of these teams were, you know, like Champions League dropout clubs. And I think sometimes the Europa League can can kind of end up being like, oh no, it's Chelsea in a bad season or Man U in a bad season. Or, you know, in this season, it looks somewhat likely that it could be, you know, a somewhat beleaguered Barcelona side, um, you know, getting a European win here. And so I think it's nice that you have two teams that, truly started and qualified in the Europa League, you know, overcoming and surpassing, you know, more venerable um, or at least well-known competitors to, to get to this final game in Sevilla, which of course is at this point, the spiritual homeland um, of the Europa League. It's a mecca of the Europa League. <laughs> no, it truly, it truly is. It truly is. Uh, and, and as we saw, you know, the Rangers and Frankfurt fans really made it their own when they were throwing you know bar stools at each other in the streets <laughs> um dude i'm shocked that in all that commotion unai emery didn't like sprint into the stadium and steal the europa league trophy from under everyone right world. right in the yeah in the the just the general like melee unai emery like sneaks in under the cover of darkness with like vicente abora or whatever yeah his name was yeah he played, like center mid for sevilla for like however long and plays at Villarreal now i believe oh does he no I, way dude. I believe, or maybe he, he did in recent years um now i have to look that up no it's like him unai emery and like francis cockland like sneak into the stadium and like steal the europa league trophy yeah, Ibora, uh, Ibora plays for uh, Villarreal now, but of course won three Europa League titles with Sevilla. Um, so all uh, yeah, we're, we're getting distracted. But all I'm saying is, I thought this was a very appropriate Europa League final, even though it ended in penalties. Um, and I think both clubs can feel very proud of of their achievements this year. Yes, I think that is true. And Caleb signs off um, sort of like his class four talk. He signs off and we can jump to the Europa Conference League. Now, I had really high hopes for this game. This is obviously the inaugural Europa Conference League final, uh, or at least, uh, you know, this iteration of a third tier uh, European competition between Roma and Feyenoord, two teams with this game feels third tier. uh, It really did. And, uh, you know, it was crazy because for the, the first half, uh, Feyenoord basically dominated possession. They had like 65% possession, but Roma scored on their only shot of the day after a beautiful ball from Gianluca Mancini found uh, my twin, Nico Zaniolo. Uh, we were born within two hours of each other on July 2nd, 1999, but that's neither here nor there. He finished around uh, Justin Bilo, and that was pretty much it. Feyenoord made like a little late push. They brought on uh, corner kick legend Alireza Yachan Baksh in the 88th minute of this game. Uh, I would have brought him on sooner. Trust me, Roma's D could have used with some tormenting, but honestly, Chris Smalling was fantastic uh, as the center back in a back three. Rui Patricio was great. And uh, Jose Mourinho, the special one, remains perfect in European uh, finals. So shout out Roma. Yeah, shout out Roma, who didn't need to win this to qualify for the Europa League, um, but did anyways. And uh, I hope next year this game features something more than this because it was very bland. So one quick question. How did you find out what hour Zainola was born? Is that like publicly available information? No, I just Googled it. Okay. So 
Yeah, this, this felt... I, so he kind of he kind of looks he doesn't look like you at all, Nathan, but he does kind of look like a version of your younger brother. Somewhere in the multiverse, it's possible that Nico Zaniolo and I were both, um, you know, we were separated at birth. Uh, you know, like like somewhere, uh, I too could have been, you know, a, a starlet, right? But yeah, yeah. everything, got, everywhere, like, all in Rome. Um, he's got this like powerful. I'm looking at his like. St- we're getting way off track here, but we'll get back on track in a second. He's got this like very interesting. He, and like the the bridge of his like forearm to like the connects to his like elbow. He's got this like very vivid eye tattoo. It's just like it's just the eye. It's a whole eye. That's doing a lot of work. I think that if I if I get one of those tattoos, it actually like opens up some sort of like portal where we can like Freaky <laughs> Friday that shit. Yeah. His, like, yeah, his yeah. Okay. I, I also just started looking at his and he really does look kind of like an Italian version of your youngest brother. He does. He does. He does like, not like, <laughs> like if your brother had like three fingers curled up and like shook them yeah. angrily at someone. Um yeah, whatever. So, so back back to the game. Although this is this is a very interesting digression. Um, you know, you'd expect <laughs> Roma are the superior side on paper, um, you know, by far. But in very Mourinho fashion, he was always going to play in a pretty extreme defensive shell. Feyenoord outpossessed them, you know, sixty-seven percent to thirty-three, outpassed them basically two to one. Um, but as you said, Nathan, this really was another special performance in a lot of ways from the special one who becomes the first manager to win all, you know, modern European uh, trophies. It is also his fifth European trophy overall. And it caps off what has been a somewhat up and down, you know, first season with Roma, but ends in success. And I think Roma's team and squad is a little odd um but i think you know players like tammy abraham chris smalling etc definitely deserved you know a result like this it was also as a, a side note a battle of the arsenal loanees or former players reese nelson who started for Feyenoord, and then ainsley mitten niles who you know was on the bench but i think given this was the first round of the conference league once again, this is not like the worst outcome, you know, like the third place team, the Eredivisie versus the what sixth place team um, in Italy is kind of what you'd expect from a match like this. And hopefully future years will look better. But, you know, I think so far it, it worked better than I expected. I thought in like, many games, it, it, sorry, I thought in many ways this game was peak Jose from start to finish capped off by Tammy Abraham going down on like a very, very, very light challenge in like the, the 80th wink. minute, looking at the camera. The wink winking. to the camera, it's so good. <laughs> oh, speaking, <laughs> like, of, speaking of Tammy like, Abraham, I came to a realization today. I was watching this game while at the gym and I realized that if I could pick any player for Arsenal to sign outside of like the outrageous candidates like Mbappe, um, who we'll talk about in just a minute. I think Tammy Abraham would be my number one choice because he was fantastic in a game where Roma really got heavily outpossessed, as was their game plan. His pace and technique and link-up play and, like, I guess, like, I mean, I hate using the word, like, power, but he's just, like, a, a powerful player. No, he's extremely um, complete. And it, yeah. it, it baffles it baffles the mind why Chelsea ever considered selling him and Fakayo Tomori. But that's, you know, a conversation for another time, especially for next week when we talk probably about Chelsea and, and their season as a whole. He's also a lot better than like Isak or at least a lot sort of like more like ready to play, I would say. He's a few years older, what, he's 24, 25 yeah. now. But, you know, he got what, close to 30 goals in all competitions this season, scored 17 in the league. I think this is a transfer that's worked out swimmingly for Roma. And I think he's probably really looking to come back to the Prem. And I think at Arsenal, I, I actually think that could work really, really well um, and would satisfy a lot of a lot of their needs. But Nick, I think you had more game analysis that right. you were I, trying what, to get to. The last word on Abraham is I think there are these players that really thrive under the Mourinho alchemy. You know, Nemanja Matic, John Terry, 
uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. And now I think, you know, as Mourinho is entering this sort of late stage era of his career, you know, it's, it's whether or not like he's still got that touch to figure something out, you know, in terms of the modern footballer. And I think in Tammy Abraham, we've seen a player who has really latched on to the Mourinho way. And I think he's fully bought in. And I think that can only, you know, improve him as I think Caleb rightly indicated, he, you know, seeks a move back to England in the next few years or so. But I think, you know, this is, I, I'm in agreement with Caleb. I think for a first iteration, you know, of this final and as a competition as a whole, I think this was an incredible success for UEFA. I think it made the Europa League a stronger competition. And I think this competition was really compelling for us to get to be exposed to, you know, teams like Bodo Glint, who smashed Ropa or smashed Roma, excuse me, in the group stages of this competition, 6-1. And so there was, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a journey back to this final that Roma needed to accomplish in order to win it. And I think, you know, in, in traditional Mourinho style, he finds a way to get his hands on another trophy. Let's talk about a player now, before we wrap up, let's talk about a player who will not be making a move to England, who will not be making a move to Spain either, despite um, common sense and our best guesses. Kylian Mbappe, Sequeira, or I guess, Nick, how would you say he stays in French? Se revient. Se revient uh, en Paris. Let me say, se tupid. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kylian Mbappe, Kylian Mbappe turns down a move to Real Madrid on a free, instead opting to stay in France uh, signing a contract that basically gives him the keys to the entire sporting operation at PSG. Uh, this move is terrible for everyone involved. Uh, it makes Madrid worse because I think they were pretty convinced that getting Mbappe on a free, you know, the club that he described as the club of his dreams, they, they, they thought that was a done deal, a, a fait accompli. It makes PSG worse because not only are they going to be without a manager, they've also, or part of this deal is, incumbent on Leonardo leaving the project. Uh, and it makes Mbappe's career a lot worse because as we talked about when Neymar made the move from Barcelona to Paris, uh, I guess now half a decade ago, the French league is where talent goes to die and, or at the very least stagnate. And it's very hard for anyone to be truly considered one of the best players in the world if you're playing in Ligue 1, which is far and away the weakest of the top five leagues uh, without any question. So I you know, given this was a situation where he had complete agency over his choice of club, it is actually kind of disappointing to me that he, and like, I obviously like not a huge Real Madrid fan, but it's disappointing to me in terms of the development of Mbappe, the player and the person that this is the choice that he made. I think we're going to learn a lot more about just exactly PSG offered in this deal. Alexander Steferin, the president of UEFA, came out today and he said that he had gotten his hands on, you know, both contract offers and they weren't, you know, that dissimilar. But we know how PSG likes to operate. You know, there were talks of building Neymar personal hotels in Qatar when he signed. And, you know, I can't imagine what they've been doing for the Messi family in the past year or so and that you know financial proposition to him to come over for however long three years and I certainly think there is some you know alchemy going on here as well in order to convince Mbappe to stay and I think this is the first instance in terms of soccer that we're really seeing sort of like a LeBron James style player becomes you know pseudo GM of a team in order to stay and like he's he's involved in you know administrative decisions and player personnel decisions and he's getting all of this at the age of, of 23 he's still incredibly young he still scarily so has room to develop in his career as a player and yeah I think you're right Nathan I would have loved to see him test the waters at a historic club like Real Madrid he even apparently discussed moving to Liverpool with Jurgen Klopp all oh, I, I think that move was probably you know a bit too a bit too far moved for, you know, the Liverpool budgets and, you know, probably Mbappe's ambitions as a whole. So I, I think at the end of the day, sport count this up as another victory for, uh, for sports washing as they claim, you know, the other next gen, you know, second player, second top tier player in the world with that uh, Erling Holland going to Man City. 
And I think this is something that we're going to have to get accustomed to as the, uh, the world turns. It was absolutely absurd. I don't know if you saw that tweet, but there was a tweet that was like, oh, you know, Holland chose, uh, you know, success over finances. Mbappe chose finances over success or something. As if like Erling Holland making his move to Man City was going to like impoverish him or something. And, but- and like at the end of the day, right, secure the bag. Right. This is no, no, no. Of course. Like at the end of the day, like, you know, of course. Like, and it's great for him that he's getting paid. Okay. Okay. Wait. Can I just, I, I, yeah, secure the bag, but the bag would have been secured if he'd gone to Madrid. Like, this is the kind of like false choice here. Like, yes, I don't think Madrid, and once again, we don't fully know all the details, but my sense or my understanding is that PSG offered a pretty astounding signing fee. Uh, in the orders of like hundreds of millions that Madrid couldn't match. And obviously that's important for all of the like people around Mbappe because when there's not a transfer fee involved, the signing bonus is, you know, like how it's going to get divvied up to like the agent, et cetera, et cetera. So that ends up being relevant here. But okay, let's say it's Madrid, we're going to give a $75 million signing fee and PSG were offering 200 million. At the end of the day, in five years, he'll still be worth somewhere between, you know, like 400 to 700 million euros, at which point it doesn't matter. Like those are, the difference in those numbers is actually zero functionally. And I think that's what makes this, you know, especially disappointing to me because the money part doesn't actually seem to be that different. And as you said, with this, and once again, it's still possible he could transfer to Madrid in like three years or something when he's 26. But at this point, there's nothing really left to achieve in Paris. Like, I don't think, as we've seen now, that the French League and PSG are ever really going to be able to get over that sort of final hump to get to the Champions League final. And if he wins another, you know, like four Ligoons over the course of this contract, it doesn't change my perception of him. He's already won the World Cup with France. But it's, it just would be kind of silly if like the only way we're really ever evaluating him is if he, you know, wins a Euro with France or whatever, which he could do anyway at Madrid. So I think this is disappointing. Um, also, it makes another mockery, I think, of, you know, financial fair play um, in general. Yeah, PSG, who are millions of euros. Yeah. In the and, you know, La Liga, which... To be fair, you know, in the past, I don't think I've been great about financial overplay, but certainly in the past, you know, few years have gotten fairly serious about it. I mean, I would know this firsthand when they're basically bankrupting Barcelona um, in the name of financial. They're they're basically shooing Messi out of their own league, whatever. We we don't need to open that can of worms again. But they released a statement calling it just preposterous that a club that has a payroll of 600 million euros in wages that loses hundreds of million euros a year um, and can't really make it up except, you know, with the dubious, you know, owner sponsorship kind of deals at crazy valuations is allowed to do this when Madrid, and once again, I don't want to see Madrid strengthened, but I think it's been pretty clear that they've tightened the books. They've basically not spent money on transfers for, for years now. Um, in preparation for this moment. And now, you know, because the pockets of PSG are endless, they can, you know, basically scupper what what a deal that that was likely to happen. So I think it's just disappointing. I think it portends poorly for like the system of 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 soccer generally, um, which maybe you guys got to, but I just think this is this is bad on almost every dimension. I think it's bad for him. I think it's bad for the sport. Um, and I think it's bad for, just, yeah, it's just bad. It's bad. And I think the, the thing that you hinted on there a bit, Caleb, is that in three years' time, he's just going to do this again. Like, he didn't sign the traditional, you know, five-year, six-year contract with PSG to, you know, see out his future long-term with the club. I think there's very much an indication that, you know, in two and a half years, the Mbappe free transfer saga is going to start over again. And I think that is a move that you're seeing Mo Salah try and execute at Liverpool, Sadio Mane to an extent. And I think that's it's going to become, you know, a recurring theme. Antonio Rudiger at Chelsea did the same thing. And he's going to get, you know, a crazy sum of money from signing for Real Madrid this summer. And I think the agency, Kylian Mbappe has sort of started something quite interesting 
where the agency is leaning a bit more towards the player post COVID. And I think in about two and a half years time, perhaps like barring, you know, another pandemic market crash in the soccer world, we're going to only see these fees rise even more and only the likes of, you know, Man City, PSG, Newcastle, United probably are going to be able to really compete. Well, yeah. I mean, the crazy thing is too, is that, you know, they're not technically fees, right? So it's hard to legislate if you're, if, if financial fair play is based on transfer fees and sort of net spend, um, it's very hard to look at free transfers and say like, oh, because the signing bonus can come, you know, outside of the traditional, you know, club pays X amount of money for X player to secure the release. Um, it's going to be even harder, I think, for the market to adjust. And especially, it's not as if the, the, the existing system, you know, works very well to begin with. And like, to a certain extent, I understand getting more money when you're re-signing a deal because there is no transfer fee. Like Eddie and Ketia, David Ornstein reported this morning that he's going to get 100,000 you know, pounds per week in salary. But when you compare, you know, spending 25 million on a striker uh, and then paying the wages and just being able to spend up front, that kind of makes sense. It's just different when the amounts are in the hundreds of millions, like this deal was reported to be. So at the end of the day, I mean, it's Mbappe's choice. He's still so young that, you know, again, he does have the ability to make one more transfer. Maybe we see him, or I mean, many more transfers hypothetically, but maybe we see him link up with Holland at Man City uh, underneath Mikel Arteta in 2026 or something. But uh, for now, he stays in Paris uh, where Neymar apparently wants to stay as well. So kind of a, a disappointing end. You know, the two biggest transfer sagas of the summer have already concluded and the window isn't even open yet. Is there anything else we want to touch upon before bidding adieu? Well, we should probably talk Champions League final. Oh, duh. <laughs> Champions League final. Nick. Uh, or at least that's what I want to talk about. I don't know about, about you guys. but Nick, we're a few days away from the Liverpool-Real Madrid Champions League final redux. Uh, Liverpool coming into this having beaten Villarreal, Benfica, and Inter. Real Madrid having taken the significantly more challenging path of PSG, Chelsea, and Man City. Obviously, these two teams don't like each other all that much. Liverpool had to deal with some injuries. It seems like Fabinho is going to be back and ready. Uh, Real Madrid have basically been coasting the last three weeks with La Liga wrapped up. Who do we think wins? And how entertaining do we think this final is? Oh, man, how entertaining. That's really hard to predict, right? Because Liverpool have played in some really entertaining finals like the FA Cup final and the Carabao Cup final from this year. And they've played in some really horrible finals, like the, their Champions League victory against Spurs and some heartbreakingly entertaining finals, like 3-1 against Madrid and Kiev. Crazy that the game was in Kiev, by the way. Just putting that one out there. That was like, what, four short years ago? But the redux of this game has me incredibly nervous. However, this time, I think... You know, unlike the Champions League knockout tie from last season where Liverpool were playing with, you know, Reese Williams and Nat Phillips at the back and Tony Kroos was just able to pump over long balls at will. I think Virgil van Dijk is going to be fit to play this game. He was on the bench against Wolves, probably could have played. Mo Salah came off the bench and scored. Um, Fabinho is back in training this week. Thiago is set to be involved in training tomorrow. It looks like he's on the on the path to start. Um, and so I think if Liverpool have, you know, even 75% to 100% of their key men fit, I think they're going to be a really tough proposition for Madrid. I think they're way more disciplined aside than this Real Madrid team are. But this, this is Madrid in the Champions League, and they seem unfallible in this competition. Karim Benzema is, has just been a titan of a player this season. And I think he's going up against, you know, his most competitive match center back wise by far in Virgil van Dijk. But I am just, I'm extremely nervous because I think this is, this could be, you know, another heartbreaking situation for Liverpool coming off of losing, having the title slip away from them last week. But I also think 
the chance for them totally being dominant in this game against Madrid is a very real one. You know, Madrid have been kind of on the beach for the last few weeks, and we know that doesn't really bode well for certain teams going into a major final. But, you know, the experience of players like Luka Modric, Benzema, you know, Tony Kroos, Casemiro, Vinicius, who I'm pretty concerned about, you know, Vinicius against the high line of Liverpool. I'm just, I think we'll get it done. I do think we'll get it done because if you don't think your team can win, why watch? But I, I, am, I am more concerned than I was a few weeks ago, shall we say. I, I have very mixed feelings. I agree that Madrid, as you said, are slightly, you know, off the boil right now. They sewed up La Liga nearly a month ago, and they've been kind of cruising since again, which, as we've seen, is often a, a negative. Meanwhile, Liverpool have been like all action competitiveness um, for, you know, the whole season, pretty much. I forget, did you say, you know, like, what is the status of Tiago in this? He has been training individually with okay. our, like, specialist physio, but okay. he's going to be back in team training tomorrow, which means that he's probably, like, on the course to start. Okay. I mean, I think that's kind of the X factor. I think a fully fit Liverpool side beats, you know, the full-strength Madrid team. Um, but I think that is the question mark. Like if Tiago isn't fully fit, you know, let's say he plays 20 minutes and then pulls up a little lame. Same with Fabinho, who I know has been back in training this week. I think this Madrid team is so experienced that they can take advantage of, you know, a little bit of indecision in that space. And then also, you know, a player like Vinicius and his threat could really nullify, you know, sort of the forward play of someone like Trent Alexander Arnold, especially if, Liverpool are unable to control the midfield as much as they wanted. So I don't know. I think there's pros and cons for each, but you know, my philosophy this year has been pretty consistent and it got me to sort of predicting Madrid would go through somewhat improbably against city. And that is I'm done betting against this team in the champions league. I hate to say it so much. It pains me. I feel like I am like committing seppuku, just, just saying these words, but I think, Benzema is the best player in the world right now. I think he's the best player on the field. Um, and basically, no matter what the scenario is, he has shown an ability to get it done. And I think some of Liverpool's attacking players, Salah even included, haven't quite been as killer, which is not to say they haven't been killer, but they haven't been as killer as Benzema. And so I fear that Madrid will just edge this. But of course, I'll be rooting for Liverpool quite strongly. Yeah, I think I think that... So both the finals we've seen so far had two goals or fewer. Uh, and for some reason, I get the feeling that we're going to see like a crazy amount. I think we're going to see like four or five goals in this game. Uh, and that would be great because as entertaining a competition as the Champions League is finals do have a tendency to be lower scoring and that doesn't mean that they aren't any you know less filled with action with the exception of liverpool spurs but i do think that stylistically these teams are an interesting match for each other uh, i think that liverpool win in regulation by a score of three to two with benzema scoring both goals for real madrid and uh i i'm excited for the, the prospect of this game on the other hand, I do think that Real Madrid are just so good at dialing it up in Champions League finals that, um, you know, it's totally possible that if Liverpool come out flat like they have in the last couple of weeks worth of games, uh, they'll just overwhelm, uh, you know, Liverpool. But I don't think that'll be the case. Hopefully this extra week on the training ground with Premier League Manager of the Year, Jurgen Klopp, uh, will have served uh, the Reds well in this game. So really looking forward to watching it uh, in Another, our traditional uh, finals watching place on the couch in Milton. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you are more than welcome. That's on, you re we've recorded my invitation now. So, <laughs> but I think another um, interesting tidbit is that Jurgen Klopp, Premier League manager of the year has an extremely poor record against Carlo Ancelotti, including last season 
you know, not being able to beat him in that god-awful Everton team who actually won at Anfield, you know, breaking a 20-year-long curse of not being able to win there. So Ancelotti is certainly one of the very few managers in the world who has Klopp's number, so to say. But I think Liverpool do get the job done. And in my ideal world, it is 1-1 in the 90th minute. And, you know, Jurgen Klopp looks at his bench. You know, he brings off Nabi Keita, let's say. And he brings on Divock Origi. And Divock Origi scores a glorious salmon rising out of the river header beating from 0.5 yards away beating his his belgian national team compatriot thibaut courtois and sealing a 2-1 victory for the reds in paris as his final action in a liverpool shirt before heading to ac milan next season well we will always have paris as the line goes i think that's casablanca right someone more cultured than i can get that line from the lexicon somewhere but Let's go. We will always have Paris, uh, and indeed, we will have the last traditional game of the European uh, soccer calendar this Saturday. We'll be back next week to break that game down and to also bring you year two of the Corner Kick Awards, including a full breakdown of our own predictions, some of which were very correct and some of which were incredibly, incredibly (laughs) incorrect. So next week will be a very fun, probably a little lengthy episode, but it'll be worth the wait. And until then, all eyes are on the Parc de France and we will catch you after we have a new European champion crown. But until next time, I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Rhodes. I've been Nick Evin, and I'm sorry in advance to uh, Southampton Football Club for (laughs) next episode. They, in fact, defied expectations, but we will see you next time to understand exactly why that is so funny. <laughs>